Anyone here for the very first time? A show of hands, please. Anyone on, on this side? Anyone here for the very first time in this? Just like to <clears throat> modify the suggestions, um, the suggestion. Um, when the talk ends, some of you have to leave, by all means. Um, if you can stay, but you can't stay for the entire time, I think it's okay. It is okay. Uh, I will not, it's, not, it's not a breach of courtesy because I know you have different schedules uh, to get home and so forth. So if you can only stay for part of it, rather than leave, stay for that part of it. If you, have, you may have a question or something you want to talk over. Uh, so uh, those who have to leave, fine. Those who want to stay for a wee bit of the session but have, can't stay for the whole thing, it's okay too. First off, uh, as I always do, is to remind us all that a Dharma talk is not like a lecture. It's not like a, uh, something that we all have, uh, probably all of us have some experience with, where you uh, listen in school, where you, you're in a hall and you receive instructions or uh, talk about something, sometimes take notes. So these days, probably not necessary. Just have all these little things. Uh, and it's a, a kind of a transfer of information and you're listening for the information um, and here a Dharma talk like if you it's not so much about whether you agree or disagree with what's being said it's an opportunity to practice listening during this first part I'm going to be practicing talking that is I'm practicing it's not it's very anyway we all know how to talk well, not all human beings, but most of us do. But I mean to really uh, be sensitive to what I'm saying and how I'm saying it. Uh, your job is uh, deep listening, is to really pay it, learn the art of uh, mindful listening. Now, as far as I can tell, you can set that up as an ideal and then struggle with veins popping out of your neck as you're trying to really listen. Um, perhaps you can't help but start that way. Uh, but what I was, the main way I've learned how to do whatever quality of listening I have is by uh, becoming aware of how I don't listen, which means the mind comes in with anything. Anything kind of intervenes and gets between you and really uh, tuning into what's being said. What's most important, and tonight I would like to, some reflections on a particular sutta of the Buddha. Um, it's about your life. It's not so much about the, uh, in other words, the, the teaching is relevant insofar as it is relevant, if it is, to your life, to help you live. That's why we're here. This is a practice center. The teachings have a place, a very important place, but they're m more like a launching pad or sometimes referred to as a shadow language. That is, they're somewhere between logical discourse and something that points to something that's beyond language, really. Uh, so, um, so let's get at it. Okay. Um, <clears throat> for, 
how many of you are really new to Buddhism, to Buddha, to this kind of teaching? Show of hands, please. Okay. Uh, a sutta, or you might hear more, uh, usually it's called a sutra. Uh, in this case, it's a talk. It, it becomes for us a discourse, uh, something that is given, supposedly, is given by the Buddha. We don't really know. We, it's the best we have. Uh, but independent of whether it came from the Buddha or was added or modified 400 years later, some of these teachings seem to have tremendous wisdom in it and are very, very helpful. So I think that's much more important than um, figuring out the authenticity of whether the Buddha gave it or not. That counts too. I've had scholars from Harvard and uh, other places come here and make cases for how uh, it's not authentic and there are some of the talks were 400 years ago, some 200 years ago from different uh, people, different cultures and so forth. That may, I, I, have to, I don't know, could be, but if it helps me live my life, that's fine, then I'll, I'll take it, it's the best I can do. Um, I wasn't doing so great on my own without this help. Um, okay, um, let me start off with a, a very strange locution. Uh, many years ago, he's now, he has now died, uh, a very wonderful uh, teacher named Ajahn Maha Gosananda. He was the uh, head monk of uh, Cambodia when Cambodia was, went through that nightmare. And he used to come to the center in the early days. He would just drop by. <coughs> Schedules meant nothing to him. So I might be give, giving a schedule to give a talk on Wednesday. In the early days, I give most of the talks. And Mahagosananda would talk, turn up, and I'd say, OK, take over. Uh, or sometimes I would be teaching a class, and there was Mahagosananda. I happened to be in the neighborhood. OK, join us. Uh, great sense of humor, very playful. And he had one teaching that he repeated over and over again. Uh, and this sutta is about that. And I hope at least a bit of it can get through. It sounds weird. The first time you hear it, anyway, it did to me. He said, what is dharma? What is the, the Buddha's dharma or teaching? It's the, the question is whether time, T-I-M-E, eats you or you eat time. What? OK, what is he talking about? Uh, the sutta I'd like to talk to you about, and I'm not going to explain it because uh, I think as we move on it will become, I hope, uh, clearer, is the Bade Karata Sutta. It's from the Majjhima Nikaya uh, 131. And um, there's a context. It's a very ancient teaching. And there are precursors to it long before the Buddha's teaching. Uh, you find it in uh, ancient India. Uh, thousands of years ago as part of the Upanishads uh, in the various yogas and it's a really an emphasis on our relationship to time and that may sound like something abstract and something for a philosophy class and it can be but it's very very practical and I hope this evening we can just at least hint at it at why it is um, in, if you go through a lot of the suttas of the Buddha, the, the different discourses, uh, there are different versions. Uh, some of them are reactions to this teaching, 
and some of them are independent. And so this issue of, it's, it's all about the present moment. You've heard about that, I'm sure. Mind, being mindful in the present moment. Anyone who's never heard that? If so, you've probably been living in Mar on Mars. Because mindfulness, mindfulness is hot, isn't it? <laughs> it's replaced organic and all kinds of, it's way ahead of, it's not even a fair comparison. Uh, and uh, so far, so okay. So that's what we do here, one of the things we do. Um, okay, so uh, the time that, that I, I believe Mahagosananda is referring to is the difference between actual time, clock time, which is practical. It's an invention. Like I have something on my wrist. And, and I could get here and leave and we can coordinate things. It's very useful social invention. There's no such thing. Uh, same with miles. We made that up. Human beings made that up. There's no such thing as miles, but it's useful. So there are certain conventions are not to be uh, seen in, as worthless because it helps us live together. There's another kind of time which you could call virtual time using more contemporary language, uh, which is not real time, it's sort of in the mind. And that's what we're going to be getting at, virtual time. Uh, for example, uh, well, you'll see. Uh, virtual time is a kind of time travel, if I could use that, where uh, something from the past comes up and we inhabit it, and it's as if it were really back in the past. It's, we're not, there's no, it's gone. Or the mind makes up some future and it could be a wonderful one and there we're smiling away. It, it's, just an, it's just fantasy, it's an imagining. So all there is is now. And even now is considered in, the, in, the, in these teachings as uh, non-existent. <laughs> How could that be? Because as soon as you say now, it's where it's already past tense. So. We're, what are we talking about here? Um, the Bade Karata Sutta, uh, there are other teachings that precede it. Uh, there's one uh, where uh, there's a teaching where this uh, uh, one of the monks at the, in ancient India uh, was famous for living alone. And he also was very respected by the Buddha and the entire community of monks and lay people for being genuine and really quite awake and quite compassionate and so forth. There was another monk who emulated him. He wanted to be like him. And people didn't like him because he didn't somehow come across as authentic. And to put it in, to paraphrase it, uh, what he would say was, uh, they were all talking about the ideal, ideal solitude. The first one is, what was so wonderful about the first one is that he knew how to live alone, he lived in, live in solitude. It doesn't mean in isolation. You can be in Times Square. It's a different kind of solitude, which we'll get to in a moment. The second gentleman uh, was literal. He was talking about external time. And what he would say is, there's no one ever in front of me, meaning literally, Wherever I go, I don't let, there's no one in front of me, there's no one in back of me, and there's no, not even anyone alongside of me. I eat alone, I sleep alone, 
uh, and he was very proud of it. And some of the uh, monks were worried about him, and they said, do you want to see the Buddha? You're in trouble. I made that up. Uh, and so he goes to the Buddha, and the Buddha was very gentle with him, uh, but uh, took him to another level by suggesting, oh, that's good that, you know, that you're able to live alone, that you're able to uh, practice without uh, the support of people. He says, but let me give you uh, an, a better way to live alone. And, and that's what the sutta is about. Now, in the translations that we have available, there are three that all sound very different, but I think they're all valid. And they all, translators' egos, they fight with each other. You know, who has the right word? And to be an innovative, you have to, you read the already existing translations. Not every translator does this all the time. But uh, some, some of them are my friends. Uh, and it does happen. And so uh, they con they, it's contested. One of them is, uh, one of them is, is the ideal solitude. That's what the sutta is about. What is beautiful solitude? What is that? Another one is, what is an auspicious day? Auspicious day. Well, that doesn't sound the same. And a third one is the one fortunate attachment. I thought this practice is about non-attachment. And now uh, it gets translated as the one fortunate attachment. These are translations of what the Buddha was talking about. Uh, so the, the, what the Buddha is trying to, to say, let's take the three of them and then we'll get into the sutta itself. In terms of auspicious day, why, what does it mean? Why is t what, what do you mean by an auspicious day? One interpretation is that in the context of ancient India, people would be concerned about their future, about what was an auspicious day, and there would be talismans and the stars and uh, uh, cosmic forces and uh, all kinds of uh, reading of palms and necromancy and all kinds of things. And the Buddha said, uh, that's not an auspicious day. Our relationship to time, T-I-M-E, if any of you are herbalists, I, I have a, I'm an amateur uh, uh, herbs, and so when I say time, I, I hear T-H-Y-M-E, but I, you probably don't, right? You heard it as time. So, uh, okay. So with the Buddha is saying, that in a sense, that's all, that's not what determines whether the day is going to be auspicious or not. It's your relationship to time. Okay. Um, the ideal time, we'll get to that in a moment. Finally, uh, the one wonderful attachment, what, what could that possibly mean? That is, in a certain sense, mindfulness is something that sets things right. It's always, of all the mind states, it's always useful. Mindfulness is always useful. It kind of puts things in their right place. It sets things right. That's why it's so central to these teachings, so much that comes out of it, out of mindfulness, whether you've got wisdom, compassion, and so forth, it is born out of the ability to pay attention to actually to this present moment. And if you're new, you may not see the profundity of what uh, developing this ability to live in the present moment can yield. Okay. Um, let's get, I'll read, I'm not going to go through the whole sutta, but... Uh, Stick with me, and then, uh, you know, some of the language, let's say, 
I've heard that on one occasion the Blessed One, that's the Buddha, was staying in Savati at Jetta's Grove, Anattapindika's monastery. There he addressed, uh, it's in, the, in the actual text it says the bhikkhus. Bhikkhus means monks, but it also meant all serious practitioners, so we're included. Those of you who are very new, don't feel that, and it's fine, you're, you're shopping, you're trying, well, is this for me or isn't it? You've heard a lot about it or some about it, and you're trying it out, that's great. So staying at, at, uh, at that monastery, there he addressed the, the uh, I'm going to call them yogis, because that's what we are. There he addressed the yogis. Yogis, yes, Lord, the, the yogis responded. The Blessed One said, yogis, I will teach you the summary and exposition of one who has had, uh, who, who, has t- who knows what ideal, I prefer that one, ideal solitude is. Uh, listen and pay close attention. I will speak. I'm asking you to do that to me, even though I'm not the Buddha. But your turn will come when you have questions, and I'll do my best to listen to you. As you say, Lord, the yogis replied, the Blessed One said, you shouldn't chase after the past. Shouldn't chase after the past. It means sort of to try to retrieve the past, to recreate it, uh, to pull it up sort of out of your uh, archives. Uh, you, shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't chase after the past or try to revive the past, what's over with, things that have happened in your life. could be in the mind, in the body, and we'll get to concrete examples and why this is important. Or place expectations on the future. There's no such thing as the future. Give it a moment now, right now. Uh, the future, is, we make it up. Because when the future arrives, it's the present. Whoop, and now it's gone. It's just became the past. So, but we, the mind seems to love to live in uh, the past. And I don't know if you've done this, but I've watched, you know, I've been at this for a while. Uh, even when we retrieve the past, uh, it's not really necessarily accurate. I don't know the relationship of some of the memories that I have and their function in the present moment, because I've seen that, isn't that interesting how I interpret the past? It seems to be very useful for how things are now. Uh, so there's a lot of some distortion, and a lot of it I, I just don't remember at all. Uh, my sister, pain, to my pain, reminds me. Uh, so things actually happened. No one's denying that. We have a past, and it's, uh, but uh, it's over, and it's not going to come back. Never. It's the way it was, and that's it. But then, so some people, let me ask you, some of you, most of, many of you were sitting before. If you were, let's say, following the breath or whatever your practice was, if your mind was pulled away, if you pay attention, you may find that some people report that it was pulled away mainly by drifting off into the past. It could be just what happened at work today, again and again, because something's not resolved. I'm telling my boss on when I see him on Monday. No, he's, no one treats me that way. When I see my boss on Monday, I'm telling him, I'm, "You've been saying that for three months. Tell him already." You know, okay, okay. Or the future. Now, you can you when when the past comes up, it's either wonderful, like 
uh, being a senior citizen, a rather senior senior citizen, I often am in the company of my fellow uh, senior citizens. And one of the uh, uh, forms of uh, a conversation that follows is the good old days. In my case, often, because when, when we were at University of Chicago, those were good old days, but they weren't that good. You know, and some of it was good and some of it was a nightmare. It was awful. We were young and confused and we had all this energy and we didn't know what to do with it and we hurt people because of our ignorance and we hurt ourselves and we made wrong decisions and we also did beautiful things and wonderful things. But somehow, uh, so we dip into the, the wonders of the past or the horrors of the past and people go on and on about how awful their childhood was and so forth. And no one's denying that. It could be really true. In the meantime, what is being, what's the casualty? It's this moment, and that's all we have. The past is over. Now, even the past is being experienced here and now. But that's what I meant. It's a virtue. It's as if time travel. It's as if the mind is living in another time when we were at the University of Chicago. And it can be quite convincing. Certain memories can be really vivid, accurate or not. And we, we feel wonderful or we feel awful. And some of it is pain. It's real pain. We've been hurt. In our, everyone's been hurt. And some of us have been hurt very badly. And we have severe wounds. Now, what is being claimed here is that uh, Dharma practice can heal these wounds. But they're not healed by reliving them over and over again. But when they appear, but by using our practice to relate to them in a new way, which we'll, we get, you probably already, most of you know what I'm getting at. The future is the same thing. We, we, well, we imagine a wonderful future, how whatever it is you think is going to happen, a new job, a new partner, a new marriage, a new house, a new car, a new anything. Uh, CIMC, I, I, I finally have a spiritual path. It's a wonderful place. The people are kind and nice, and uh, it's not overly ritualized and ceremony. And you don't have to have special outfits, and you know. And they speak English, and uh, the teachers don't wear robes; they wear sweatpants. But it's but it's, and they have Brooklyn accents. But uh, but I'm comfortable with that, you know. And I, I'm definitely gonna. This is my path. And it's going to make my life so much better than it has been. Maybe. Okay. And then we over and over play that tape. Or a horrible one. A really horrible. We'll get to that. This one uh, among senior citizens. At, uh, e starting even earlier uh, than my age. I haven't said. All right. It's 82. <laughs> but uh, my father, you know, often people... Uh, some of the conversations among some of the seniors is uh, what is a se when is a senior citizen a senior citizen and when my father was alive I remember one time he was I was with him and a whole bunch of his cronies and they were concerned with this and they tr tried to figure out when is a and one person said well, when you're 62 and another 65 and over 70 and they were talking about the legal aspect of it or when it should be legal or when it shouldn't be and my father said, nope, that's not when you're a senior, senior citizen. When the little old lady that you help across the street turns out to be your wife, that's when you're a senior <laughs> citizen. Okay, so you can see how the mind 
do, is this familiar to you? Does your mind spend any time in some imaginary future made up? Uh, this is asking you not to try to get rid of it, but to get to know it. To see, we're not at war with ourselves, with the mind. We're not trying to turn ourselves into a battlefield. Sometimes people think there's self-improvement. I'm not a good person. I'll, I'll, be, get, I'll get spiritual. I'll become spiritual. And then I'll have a really, everything will be wonderful. It's not, uh, perhaps some things can, that's very good, come out of um, honesty, clear seeing, and really uh, self-discovery authentic self-discovery which comes when the mind is capable of doing that when you're really interested so this practice I assume that if you're here even those of you who've dropped in and are very very new to all this that you care about the quality of your life otherwise why would you be here on a hot night like this I know it's supposed to be air-conditioned but it's still not that great <laughs> so you care I have to I assume that if you didn't I'd rather be at an air-conditioned movie myself or somewhere else. Okay. Uh, and even the present. Well, how do we mess up the present? By we become so preoccupied with uh, some emotional state, stirs things up that we're uh, not in touch with, what's with ourselves. We lose our sovereignty over ourselves. We're enslaved. We're caught. We're pulled, we're pulled in different directions by the play of the unexamined mind. In the Buddhist language, the ignorant mind, the, un the mind that is unaware, that is not mindful, that is lost in its own productions. Okay. Uh, let's read on here. You shouldn't chase after the past or place expectations on the future. What is past is left behind. The future is as yet unreached. It isn't here. It ain't never going to be here. Because when it gets here, it's not the future anymore. Okay, I, you heard, I said that already, didn't I? Good, I'm not totally senile. All right. Um, you clearly see right there. Now, this is an important point. It's all, it all is. In other words, you, the whole teaching of the Buddha could be in this sutta. Uh, many years ago, I talked on this sutta, and I think I gave 15 or 20 talks on it. It's so rich, but we can hint at it. Because it's about, well, what is all this fuss about the present moment? Be mindful, power of now, be here now, 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 here now. What's the big deal? Why? Why not live in fantasies? And why not dwell in the past? What's wrong with that? I won't answer it, but uh, when it says, you clearly see right there, for me, that's the essence of vipassana. Because one of the things, a vital thing that we're developing, in order to develop wisdom and compassion, you have to see. And if this is about seeing yourself. It's self-discovery. In order to do that, let's say there are telescopes to see the stars, there are microscopes. The medical world has got all kinds of instrumentation that helps uh, people see more, see things that the naked eye couldn't see. For us, we don't have any of that. It's what you could call our awareness. We're, it's odd. We're learning. We have the ability to see ourselves and learn from it and actually heal ourselves by ourselves with awareness. So, but that quality has to be developed. It has to be made stable, 
and calm and steady and most of all uh, interested in what's happening let's say to begin with our inner life because many of the things that come up fear loneliness great loss you you know I don't have to go all forms of sorrow are very powerful very powerful energies and unless the awareness is steady it it's it's going to get uh, taken over it's like a tsunami it, the, the the emotional state or the mental state is too powerful so we're developing a quality of mind that is both steady calm clear and supple uh, and that's wisdom is born out of that clear seeing the whole vipassana is clear seeing exceptional seeing extraordinary seeing well we're developing we don't have an x-ray machine we don't have a t uh, an electronic telescope or whatever what we have is the quality of our own mind and we can uh, refine that ability in ourselves so we can see ourselves it's quite remarkable in a way because what's being said is we've enslaved ourselves and we can free ourselves in fact we're the only ones who can do it the Buddha said I can't free anyone all, I'm a, all I am is a finger pointing to the moon let's say that well, it's not on but let's say that was the moon the Buddha is saying these teachings, these suttas, what I'm saying tonight, they're just fingers. They're like signs, Boston, 45 miles. If you get fixated on the text, as people do, or on particular techniques and practices or teachers or places, they're vehicles to help you go beyond. So uh, the Buddha is saying that liberation or freedom comes from learning how to see how to see clearly, directly, and out of that, uh, out of that discernment. Uh, if you're interested, you begin to understand how, we, how suffering is created, and a lot of what wisdom is about is unlearning. Mainly, l unlearning forms of the way our mind functions, the way we behave, the way we speak, the way we do everything. I find it an exciting journey, and, and, and I don't feel it will ever end until my last breath. It's learning, learning how to live. There's so many different kinds of wonderful learnings. In this town, you all know it. I'm sure you've all, oh, you have somebody you learn, you love photography endlessly. There's so, you can never finish it. There are people who love tea. I'm one of them. There's no end to learning all about tea or cook anything, dance, whatever you tell me, carpentry. Uh, here it's learning how to live and that is not possible without self-discoveries a learning because that's the person who's doing the living and we put our signature on everything we do we bring the quality of our being to those who are in our life we can't give we can fake it we can have ideals and do impersonations of being this that and the other but usually it breaks down and when there's enough pressure uh, it falls away and suddenly we find out oh really and then we're disillusioned disillusioned but we were we had an illusion in the first place okay so clear seeing is at the heart of what we do here learning how to see um, and that's what he's so that we're learning how to see how the mind creates the past what it does with it it makes it up it retrieves something. It, it's in our, um, what do you call it? I guess in modern terminology, be our, our 
unconscious or uh, storehouse in one Buddhist approach. It's called storehouse consciousness. In other words, all, there's all kinds of stuff down there in the basement. And also it's more accessible. Uh, so we're learning how to see what the, the residue of what happened from the past. It's in us. And learn how to see it clearly and understand its effect and, it's, and uh, how it affects our li- actual living. And we're learning how to see how the mind makes up a future, how it does that. And, we're, and of course, we're learning how to, uh, to really be in touch with the present moment intimately, to, to, to establish a communion with the present moment, even if it's awful stuff, tremendous grief. Can the mind learn how to open up to that? It's not detachment, by the way. Maybe to begin with, we have no choice but to pull back and look with a telescope from Mount Olympus. Oh, there's fear. But uh, that isn't, my understanding is that's not finally what the Buddha's talking about. It's non-attachment, which is different than detachment. Detachment is still a struggle. There's attachment and detachment. Struggling to see which one wins out. Non-attachment is opening up allowing what's there to be exactly as it is, learning how to be present, how to receive it, and to observe it and watch, let it unfold and tell its stories in this regard to how the mind makes up time and what it does with it and what the implications that has. Let's see, we're getting close. I'm not reading the whole sutta or... Um, So you see, you clearly see right there, emphasized right there, said twice by the Buddha. That means this, just this, what right now you have a this, you're hearing a this, it's gone. Are you in touch with it? Or are you off in la-la land somewhere? And he says, not taken in, I've been talking about that for a while now, not taken in, unshaken, that's how you develop the heart. In other words, uh, this is the core of what we're learning so that uh, we're developing a quality of consciousness. Uh, all real spiritual teachings, and it's not limited to Buddha Dharma, but all the different Buddhist schools, which I know a little bit about, they are, uh, they're revolutionary in a certain sense, bloodless. It's not with guns, it's inner, because, and it's always been revolutionary. Now, there was, the Buddha was an outer revolutionary, too. He'd, he changed many things in India at the time. He disregarded them, like the caste system and so forth. Uh, the revolution is in a new way of relating to your, the same experience that every human being goes through, without exception. A new approach, how to relate, to starting with yourself. And that's the awareness that we learn here. Can we learn how to be awake with, in a non-judgmental way? How to receive our experience without condemning it, interpreting it, explaining it, uh, grasping onto it and dry, getting intoxicated by it. In, in the communities like this where people are educated, explaining it is a real problem I've seen because we're all so smart. I include everyone. <coughs> So if you don't think you are, you are. Uh, we're so smart that let's say we read something or maybe I said something good tonight, I hope. Uh, and then we understand it. And it's very satisfying. 
and we, uh, we get rejuvenated by reading something beautifully or beautifully written or some spiritual poetry. Ah, oh, yes. And it's rejuvenating and refreshing and we're a little more optimistic about the day. But that isn't the same, that's close, but it's not the same as the direct seeing, which has no thought in it. It's, it's not about it's not about interpretation, translation, explanation. Uh, it has no motive other than it's more like akin to a, a wonderful aesthetic. For me, it is. It's very beautiful to see a life inter, your inner life unfold to you, and to see even when you're looking at it, it's not what you want to be there, but it's there. And if you you won't last unless you learn. But there's tremendous value in getting to not be intimidated by what you've been intimidated for mostly your life, your own fear, your own sorrow. The Buddha learned how to pay attention to whatever turned up, come what may seeing, come what may. Well, right now, that's not, probably not true for any of us. There's certain things we can be aware of. And we start off, if you notice, with the breath, many of us, not, you may have other methods, mantras, metta and so forth. They're all there are many useful ways to begin. Um, we're not, often we're not asked to look at our stuff yet. We're training the mind so that it's fit, like just like an athlete, you don't, or trying to climb a mountain. You don't just go up there without being in shape. Or you're a fool. So we're training ourselves so that we're more and more able uh, to meet life. In however it, it, and we don't know how it's going to be from moment to moment. Little by little, you develop the confidence that everything is workable. Why? Because it's observable. But you may not feel that yet, or you may not value that quality yet, because you, it takes a while before you taste it. Because just believing the words is not going to do much for you. It's a nice beginning. It's okay. But you have to learn it from your own experience. You have to be a lamp unto yourself. I'm. I'm just parroting the Buddha. But you don't really don't need the Buddha. The kinds of learning that, is, that liberates you, of course you, it has to be something that's alive for you, real. Not someone else's idea, no matter how well put. Okay? So, I'll repeat that. Not taken in, unshaken, that's how you develop the heart. Ardently doing what should be done today. And this is interesting. For who knows? Tomorrow, death. Uh, whoa, I thought spirituality is uplifting. I don't want to be reminded about death. Uh, there's a fair amount of that. It's essential in Dharma teaching. It's not morbid. It's getting us to wake up. That's a, it is a fact. Does everyone know that all of us in this room, we're all going to die? Even you young whippersnappers, as they say in the cowboy movies, you're going to die. You're going to get old. If you take good care of yourself, I hope you don't get too sick. And then, bye-bye. <laughs> Guaranteed. For sure. That's the one thing I, I do know. They say, no, no thing, death and taxes. Well, I don't know about taxes, but death for sure. <laughs> they have all these announcements now on TV about how you can... Uh, in a sense, cheat the IRS 
For if you owe 20000 well, else with our company, we'll work it down so you only have to pay 2000 What do you mean? You're supposed to pay your taxes. There are people who are honest paying their taxes. Yeah, but we have a good business. We'll cut it down. Don't worry about it. For <laughs> smoking a cigar. All right. Ardently doing what should be done today. Of course, what's implied here is being awake to what's happening right here and right now. For who knows, tomorrow death. There's no bargaining with mortality and mortality's mighty hoard. Okay. Whoever lives this way ardently, you know, sincerely with energy, relentlessly day and night has truly had, has truly had uh, experiences in um, real uh, solitude, genuine solitude. Okay. Now, Here's what, let's, let me put this stuff down. I'm tired of holding this piece of paper. Oh, wait a minute. Has truly had, a, 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 depending on the attachment, an auspicious day, one fortunate attachment. Uh, an auspicious day is, as I mentioned, uh, one interpretation of that word, uh, bade karata, is uh, in the context of talismans and astrology and cosmic forces and what the Buddha is saying, uh-uh. You know, it's your relationship to time that's crucial. Or the other interpretation is one fortunate attachment. Now here, when I, if, we, if we went on this, some of you might get all caught up in it. I thought we're not supposed to be attached. Uh, why is it one fortunate attachment? Let me put it this way. Yes, attachment is suffering. In fact, I just wrote a, 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 a little, I don't know what to call it, in the newsletter, uh, talking about upadana, which is attachment, and how it brings suffering. And now this is saying, one fortunate attachment? Is this a contradiction? Maybe it is. Maybe this isn't the best translation. But let's put it this way. You should be so lucky as to get attached to mindfulness at the present moment. You're not even close. I say that without knowing you. and with, I do know myself, though, and uh, maybe some of you are, that because, look, if you ever get really attached to being in the present moment with awareness, I mean, really doing it all the time, day and night, ardently, let me know, and we'll sign you up for a job here at the center to be head teacher, and I can really retire. Okay. Uh, so, so says the peaceful sage. The peaceful sage, of course, is the Buddha. Um, hmm. Just a few remarks, then I, I'd like to hear uh, some questions f or comments or what, what, what's on your mind. One is, well, wait a minute, does that mean uh, this sounds terrible? Uh, what about our past? We all have a past. Let's say you meet a new person. Some of you are young. Maybe you're meeting people through, you know, these I don't know, computer dating or something, and you, they, they line up, everything is perfect, and you meet. Um, so tell me about yourself. Oh, no, I, uh, I practice Buddhism. We don't talk about the past. <laughs> no, of course you have the past. And you can say, well, I was born here, and I have this, this, and I used to do that, and I was here. It's not about that. It's about your relationship to that. That's practical information. It, it, you do have a past. It's a fact. It's only when our relationship to, the, to that past is so unconscious, so unexamined, that it's tyrannical, that it's uh, uh, 
poisoning the present moment and, and as uh, consequently uh, fouling up our life, the quality of our life. And how about the future? Well, what about the future? How about you? No, no, we, uh, I'm a Buddhist. We have no, uh, tomorrow doesn't exist. We don't talk about the future. No, of course not. This planning. Uh, the, the, what is being said here is if to be firmly planted in the present moment, if you know what you're doing, of course you have a past and of course you can use the future. You can speculate. You can sometimes, uh, Narayan and I, many of you know her, or students of her, uh, we have vision, we, we meet and we have visions of the future, you know, getting a sense of the culture and certain things are unchangeable in, the, in these teachings, they're timeless. And other things have to take into account the times that we live in. And so we're practically visionary, doing vi we're trying to see where, where the center is headed. Is it headed in the right direction? But we know that it isn't a fact. It's just we're doing our best to kind of get a sense of things. And we have to plan. And you have to use the future for all kinds of things. But you know what you're doing. You're not lost in it. And in the present, when the, mo when the mind gets steady, less and less are you pulled around or lost in all the vexations that the mind creates, uh, uh, deep emotional and mind states, which we drown in. Let me give you uh, some examples to make sure, and I think small one. well, I don't know how small, how practical these teachings are. First of all, uh, this comes to mind. I haven't thought about it in a long time. Uh, why is it that we don't want to live in the present? Because we, we uh, you, you might agree with that, that we sure I want to, but the facts belie that. Because if you watch your own mind, you do it. For, you know, not tonight, whenever you want. See how, how uh, if your mind just loves to live in the present moment, just can't have enough of it. Okay. Um, there was a, a research study some years ago about what is the most frequently used line in Hollywood films. Do you know what it was? Let's get out of here. <laughs> I would say that's, yeah, wherever we are, that's not the right place to be. There's always some place better, someone better, better mindset, better technique, better method. Uh, uh, the Tibetans are better. I think Zen, they are, they're, they're so funny and direct, and they have outfits, and you know. Uh, and they have new names. I want a new name. I'm tired of my name. I want a Japanese name, <laughs> a Korean name, okay. Um, so, uh, but take it on as a personal uh, investigation, research. Try to understand your relationship to the present moment because, and see if it's true. Is that all we have? This, just this? Uh, one of the first teachers I had when I was in Japan I was asking all these highfalutin, mostly abstract Dharma questions. I'd been reading so many books. And he shook me. And, and he said, this is it. <laughs> oh, okay. In other words, that's what you're talking about. And he said, this is it. Right now, this is it. This is our life. Uh, right now, let's say death, that's an idea we have. At a certain point, the time will come when we will die. It'll be a real moment like this with real people, 
a real place and uh, hopefully with this training is useful at all times including that it's part of why we do it okay let me give you other examples let's see here's another misuse when uh, myself and two of my friends we uh, went to Korea for a year we practice in Korean Zen I was in Korean Zen in in Zen for 10 years, five years Korean, five years Japanese. And when we first arrived in Korea, uh, um, the, uh, we were completely new to Korean food. And there's no, nothing like what we call a breakfast, you know, that is, you know which would be pancakes, etc. It's all uh, a lot of cabbage and something like miso soup and something like, you know, uh, rice, of course. And I wanted breakfast. So for about a week to 10 days when we first got there, I was endlessly going on and on in front of our teacher, who was the Korean Zen master who brought us there. Sort of like, boy, even, I don't know if this exists, even International Pancake House would be great. Does that, st does that still exist? It still exists? Oh, boy, I'd do anything just for a bagel and a cup of coffee. Oh, wow, just for, you know, all these... Uh, Kellogg's cornflakes would just be like a feast for me right now, you know, you know uh, and I don't care if it had 2% milk or 1% or if it's not, if it's GMO, no, they didn't even care about GMO then. Uh, so I went, went on and on and the Zen master kept quiet and I kept, every time we had a Korean breakfast, by the way, now I love Korean food, but then I, it was new to me. And, and I wanted to, a breakfast that I had all my life. Finally, he'd had enough. And he didn't do it physically, but he backed me against the wall and he screamed at me and he said, my name, I had a name, a Korean name, Byonjo. Uh, I prefer Larry. But anyway, Byonjo. And he said, where are you? He screamed and I said, Korea. And he said, exactly. And walked away. That was the end of my breakfast shtick. Uh, it became easier, you know. Like, yeah, what do, what do I? What am I keep imagining these breakfasts? Is the pancake house that great? No, it wasn't. Uh, and little by little, it became okay. Rice is fine. I wanted brown rice, but they only had white. But all right. <laughs> uh, in that same retreat, this gets the stakes get a little bit higher, where you can see the benefits of practice. The three of us, myself and my two friends, we were the first Americans to, to go to Korea to practice and And we were there for a year. Uh, there was a one, they had a tradition of a one-week retreat in the middle of the three-month retreat. And during that one week, no sleep was permitted. And we were not informed that that's what we were getting into when we got our tickets and flew over to, Korea, to Japan and Korea. One week with no sleep. And we were just terrified. And we were, th we were ready to go home, but we were too embarrassed because we were carrying the American flag. You know, the first Americans coming to Korea, they'll think American uh, practitioners are wimps, so we have to stick it out. But the first, not even the whole day, it was a nightmare. Uh, and finally, I, if you wanted an interview, it was mainly in silence, just sitting and walking, sitting and walking, eating, bathroom, sleep, that's all. It was a very simple retreat. Uh, but if you wanted an interview, you could have one. So I, had an, I asked for an interview towards the end of the, the beginning of the second day when we were 
it was a nightmare for all for the three of us. And uh, this Zen master was about in his 90s. Uh, they had to carry him in. He was no longer mobile, but his mind was clear as a bell. And he, I described the situation, and he said, "Oh, he said, look, we've been doing this for almost a thousand years." He said, "You'll get through it." He said, "But look, it's simple." Uh, right now, you're carrying an imaginary future. My God, six and a half days to go, seven days without sleep, uh, um, five days without sleep. He said, that is your imagination. Just take each thing in, its, in the moment. When it's time to eat, just eat. When it's time to sit, just sit. When it's time to walk, just walk. If you go to the toilet, go to the toilet. And when the mind starts throwing up this other stuff, See what it is. You're just imagining what it's like. That weight is what's making real torment for you. Now, it was no picnic, but we did get through the seven, day, seven days, even went an eighth day. These, there was, these monks were macho, so uh, we had to also be macho. So at any rate, but um, it wasn't easy. It was, but would I inflict it on you? I wouldn't. I don't, I don't really... But, but something good thing. But we were hallucinating. We were, and if you fell asleep, whack with a stick. Um, when you have difficult things to do, check your mind. You'll see a lot of it is the mind imagining a horrible future. And once you see that and let it go, it's just what it is. It becomes. It may not be very pleasant what you have to do. It may be very difficult, like attending to a good friend who's dying, or to yourself. But if you can, if you stay anchored in the present moment and not make up stuff about how it's going to be and how you'll be when this happens and all, when that falls away, it's a very different experience. And so it has applications all over the place. Let's see. Um, What did uh, Mahagosananda mean? It's a question of whether, in Dharma, it's a question of whether time eats you or you eat time. Maybe you already understand now. When we're, time unexamined, remember, it's made up in the mind. It's psychological time, virtual time. The mind makes up time, makes up a past, makes up a future, and then inhabits it at the expense of all that we really have real aliveness is right here and now. And that's the only time and place it's going to happen. And it's through doing that again and again, like one phrase for it is what is. What is is just this, this moment. You transcend what is. You go, by going into what is, you go to beyond what is. You transcend it quite naturally without trying to. Whereas if you keep getting lost in the past or the future and mistake that or use that as your reality. It's what the Chinese called killing life because you're divided. You're not wholeheartedly uh, where you are. Part of you is here. Your body may be here, but you may be off in some fanciful future of what retirement might be like or lost in the past. And they call that killing life. And, the, and if you are 100% intimate into entering into communion, with the way, with this moment, they call that giving life to life. It's not merely poetic. You can feel the difference when you're awake in the present moment. Otherwise, why do we do this stuff? If there aren't real benefits, we wouldn't continue. 
we have to learn the old way, there's a paradigm shift. The old way where we prefer making up what life is with a thinking mind, which is time. After all, time is made up by thought. Finally, take fear. We imagine something and then we're afraid. You might be safe in this moment, but the mind makes up the soil out of which the fear grows is thinking about some future. And once you see that, it's gone, and then you're left with how it is here, right now, which may, is the way it is. So what is, is what we're learning how to come back to again and again, knowing how to relate to the future for planning, sensibly, or whatever we need the future for. Uh, sometimes hope is needed, but if you keep living on hope and there's no, no, no fulfillment, that won't last. And dipping into the past, for example, some of us have deep roots. We love our, our past. Like I uh, was fortunate. I had two loving parents, and I had wonderful aunts and uncles and cousins, and uh, we were poor but had a very uh, wonderful childhood. Uh, do I have to throw that away? No. But if it controls me, so that I'm not fully alive now, and I, and I keep seeing through my past, I don't accurately see what's happening, uh, then my actions are going to be flawed. They're inaccurate, because they're colored by the past. I'm seeing with yesterday's eyes, or hearing with yesterday's ears. This has nothing to do with what I'm saying, but my granddaughter, uh, she was five at the time. Uh, I was very proud of her for this remark. The teacher said, Ilanya, you're not listening. And, and she said, uh, she's been surrounded by people like myself. And she said, oh, I left my ears home. <laughs> <laughs> so she's already in trouble, but all right. Um, I think I said, so uh, liberating ourselves from virtual time is we eat time. Being eaten by time is when we're, uh, because it's unexamined, we don't realize we're living in a somewhat fictitious reality, a conceptual world, <coughs> rather than an intimate, real one. Okie dokie. Uh, those of you who have to leave, please do so. I'm sorry, I've overextended. Uh, uh, should have ended a while back. And, uh, and let's get started, though. Anything on your mind? Anything that, it doesn't have to be a question. You can just share observations. Or maybe you learned something about all this stuff, or you already know. Oh, yes. Yes, sure. We only have one, right? That works. I think so. Yeah. We have a mic for you. Sure. I have a question on um, attachment, and this has been with me all day. I haven't been mindful, I guess. But um, attachment, right, and you brought it up. As far as relationships are concerned, right? Yes. And this is going to affect me in the present. Like, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm, I just want to know, like, as far as people is concerned. Like, I have a cousin who's been really good to me. And I just don't want to suffer in the present by putting too much, too much. You don't want to separate what? I don't want to suffer in the present. Oh yes. By putting too much pressure on her, because she's been good to me. Yes. So as far as being attachment with like people and 
relationship because there's only been a handful of people that's been good to me in my life. Like, I hear as, you loud and clear. Go ahead. As far as people are concerned, concern, as an attachment, can you tell me your point of view as far as attachment yeah. is concerned yes. with relationship, how you see it so you don't suffer in the present? Yes. Can you share your insight? I'll do my best. Um, first of all, that's the hardest one for all of us, what you're getting at. That's what a large part of what the center is dedicated to doing. We've jumped, jumped right into the um, full catastrophe. Why start a center right here near Central Square and we don't have, it's not residential by intent. We throw you back into your life. Come here and learn some skills, go back out. Come here and do some practice, go back out. Go here, there, here, there. Uh, uh, where are you right now? Hello? Yes. Where are you? Where do I live? No, where are you? It seemed like you weren't listening. Were you See, distracted? Kinda. Why? No, it's not to blame you. It's we can do some work right now, right in this moment. Because I wanted to get this question while you were here. I'm about to answer it, but then you, why? Then you left the present moment. Why? Because I wanted to make sure, because this was an important question for me. Yes. Because I wanted to get you while you were here. I want to answer it, but I want to answer it to you. Okay. Right, but it looked like at that point, you left. Where did your mind go? If you don't have to tell me. But you have to know. It's very important that you know. It's not to criticize you. It's, it's the way we humans are. Okay. No, I, I hear you. It's a very profound question. But in order for me to answer it, I want to I make sure that I'm talking to you. Okay. That you and I are connected. Okay. Otherwise, what's the point? I'm not into giving speech. I'm not Google. You know, what is the relationship of attachment and love? Press Google will give you, you know, thousands of research studies and videos and do a much better job than I can. But I want you and I to do what we can because it's a difficult question. Okay, okay. I, I heard you. I just want to, the, the center was started because we want meditation to not be reserved for just special places like here or retreat centers but for it to be useful, or let's put it as a question, can awareness and learning be brought into relationship so that it actually helps us? Because we humans are very bad at living with each other. Have you noticed? Right. It's called war in the extreme. Look at the planet. We have failed, we have no, we've learned we're brilliant, but not at this. Okay, so he, let's for the moment make a distinction between attachment and love. I'm going to take the uh, really hard one because I get asked this a lot by mothers who say, look, I'm very attached to my child, you know, uh, and you keep talking about non-attachment. Okay, and I think many, and, uh, many of the, the monastics who have not had children, and I have not had my own children, but I have stepchildren, and so I don't know it the way someone who's change diapers and all the rest knows. I freely admit I'm not, not that qualified, but many of you are. And so here, here the, so it's not uh, the, not being attached to someone you love, like your cousin, uh, it's very hard. But if you pay attention, 
there is a difference. In other words, don't try to be non-attached. That would just be some idea that you run after. Is but notice because your question suggests that your love, to some degree, is being compromised by the fact that you're you're grasping on. Perhaps you're afraid of losing, or you're afraid of yeah, you've heard of losing her affection, or you don't want to push too hard. You know, I don't want to strangle or you know. Uh, because people go through changes, like she might go through there, and she, like expectations on yeah. her, and she might have her own issues, and I might strangle her or grasp too right. high. She can't be there for me because right, I'm you. grasping too high. Yes. And that might be where the, the, the non attachment might be good because I'm expecting too much from her. Okay. All I can say is um, your cousin is your cousin. You have to work on your, here the emphasis is start, always start with yourself. It doesn't mean you don't, let's say you're in the presence of your cousin and something like this energy is going on between the two of you. It is possible to learn how to pay full attention to your cousin so you're not neglecting her, her or him, whoever, and you're in touch with yourself. And you, there is a difference between when you're holding on and you can see a feeling of insecurity, of fear of loss, of dependency, uh, that isn't love. Uh, love, uh, you know, first of all, the love I'm talking about in Dharma terms is not, uh, honey, I love you, baby, booby, but if you leave me, I'll kill you. That's not, not, the, not, popular, not popular music love. Uh, so, uh, but then what is unrealistic is the thought, let's say, I have not met a mother who loves her children who can say I'm totally unattached. But here's where this practice has helped m mothers and by extension, you and your cousin. By paying attention to, let's say, something, the attachment, the child eventually grows up, and then they want more and more to be on their own and leave home and go to school or whatever it is they do. And uh, you, you begin to see that you're holding on. Well, it's actually, you're not doing a good job of mothering, that you're, you're creating a problem with your child because you, uh, letting go doesn't mean that you don't love them. It just means that you're giving them more freedom. So in your case, everything you, your apprehension about what you, how you might have a negative effect, you care about your cousin, which is great. Mm -hmm. So, but it, and you can learn it in relationship. As, but you, you have to be in touch with yourself. The clearer you get, the more you're able to see what's appropriate, when to be silent and listen to your cousin, when to speak, when to draw her out and saying, am I asking too much of you? In other words, to maybe people often don't want to talk about what's on their mind mostly. And they, it just, uh, they, do, it just uh, they stew in it internally. Over, and they talk to everyone else about it, therapists, meditation teachers, friends, and not the person. But to talk to the person, it, it's best if, it's, if there's some awareness, some wisdom, and some kindness, where you uh, balance what I was talking about earlier so that you're doing it. And it won't be perfect. So I haven't met a mother yet who can say I'm totally unattached. And I think if uh, some, okay, do you see what I'm getting at? So even what little, uh, when you can see the difference between grasping, don't, don't go for perfection. Just see a little bit of it and see, oh, look how this is affecting me. Start with yourself. You're, the you're a little bit of a casualty. And then how can that not affect your, co your cousin? Yeah. 
Okay, so as you work on yourself, you're actually helping her. Yeah, I was just saying that in just in general relationships, you know, with people, you know. Well, that's all, that's, it's all the same, yes. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Sure. Please. Uh, we need... Um, I can always count on you for a question. Okay. I have a, I, I remember. You had, no, I you have asked in the past, yeah. I still have them. That's good. And, um, I, and, I, and I'm still interested. Um, when you mentioned um, not chasing after the past. Yes. Or, or getting lost in the future. Yeah. Um, the problem is that the past comes chasing after me. Yes, but then how do you relate to see? In other words, be more concrete. Okay, what do you so mean? I, in, in my, I'm not. I'm, I'm intermediate in terms of practice, but one of the puzzles... You're I, being a what? I'm, I'm not a beginner, but I'm not a, an advanced yogi. So, throw away so advanced I, beginner. Okay. Throw that away. Uh, and I, and Just, I keep dealing with the past coming at me. What, what do you mean by that? Um, well, there's nostalgia and there's that, that, that you'll seek for. That's when I sit around with the guys or friends and that, that's good stuff I mean and and I and and maybe I shouldn't be lost too much in that okay can we stop because you said okay. a mouthful already oh. uh, often you say the question does that mean I'm not allowed to fantasize I'm saying look I don't want to tell people under no conditions will you be allowed to ever fantasize again <laughs> uh, but pay attention to what fantasy does if because if it's preventing you from uh, uh, Facing your present life, in other words, if, if it's if nostalgia, it's what I was getting at with uh, some of my senior friends. All they want to talk about is the good old days. That was like a long time ago at the University of Chicago. It's okay to have that sometimes. We do. But when that's being replaces the actual, how are you living now? University of Chicago has been over for 50, more than 50 years for me. Okay, so I, I prefer to be around younger people because it, we're m much more uh, into their present life. And I want to, for me, this is my present life. I know I went to the University of Chicago. I think it was a great time. I will always be grateful for having gone there. I loved my friends. We had a good, and it was not, what, and I don't want to keep going back to that. So that's how, so nostalgia can be misused if it becomes a replacement uh, a barrier, an obstacle to your intimate experience of the present moment. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's the easy part, um, and but it's a good caution. But the harder part is when I'm helpless, being overcome with things like regret or things that happen. Yes. Um, and yeah, in, in, the, in the practice, I'm, um, we're told to watch but not get lost in it. And yes. I'm sorry to keep interrupting, yeah. but you, you asked, you, that's why I like, I, you know, your question. Um, sometimes there are skillful uses of the past. That's why there's so much more that can be said about this particular sutta. There are skillful uses of the past. It comes up in the teachings of the Buddha. So that, let's say we did something that's, um, we have remorse for how we behaved in the past. Is something like that. We can't change that. We did it. It's over. So what you can do is experience that remorse, but in the service of learning. 
but if you over, in other words, it's not laying a, a guilt trip on yourself, beating yourself up over and over and over again, then it's, we know how to do that. We know how to punish ourselves and torment ourselves with, uh, by repeating it. But so it's not to get up, be at war with, uh, if, you, if you hurt someone in the past, uh, it's to feel what you did, to experience the remorse, and, and then see if you can learn from it so that the present, present life, your life in the present, uh, to some degree at least, has a chance of benefit, benefiting from that boo-boo that, that was created in the past. Does that make sense? Yeah. So there is use for it. But if you find that you, it's an com- obsession over and over and over going, then, uh, then it's a, a squandering of energy, and it's, it's not of much use in terms... Remember, this path is about getting free. It's not just about feeling good. It's about getting free. It's about sometimes called enlightenment. I prefer the term awakening. Uh, okay, I've said enough. Is there more? No. So you, you, you're saying don't... So it's not that you don't engage in it. I guess the issue, the question I had was the balance between getting lost, engaging in it, and trying to understand it. And you're saying just understand it as... as Objectively as you can, and move on. Sort of. Well, but remember, I said and learn from it. Right. Yeah, as best you look. You may then repeat it again and again. Some things, some lessons are very hard for us to learn. Have you know? You know, it's just we repeat the same mistakes. Look at the human race. Every war, people saying we've learned this is the war to end all wars, and we, they're crying and everyone's sobbing and the wounded and all that, and then we just have another one. And then we go through the same, and there's always a new generation of young people who march off to bands and flags, and then we do it again and again. So there's some things that we humans have a hard time re-educating ourselves with. But in principle, it's not to disregard the, what was you, the term you used? Um, let's, say, let's say some something hurtful that you did in the past. Regrets a regret, ever. that's a good one. A regret. Uh, if you bring it up, it's not so much necessarily even thinking about it. It's allowing yourself to relive as best you can that experience, and and something like regret may accomp- may grow out of it, uh, because you already had the regret. That's why we're having this conversation. And is there something that can be learned from it? Spend some time with that, and then move on. And then, if your mind keeps doing that, then that isn't Dharma practice. If you're welcome to keep doing it, I'm not in charge of your mind. But uh, the practice would be to benefit from it and then move on. Yeah. Anyone else, please? Please. Um, I have a very wonderful father who is uh, a few years your junior, but um, quite close in age. And uh, I think for him, um, having more time now and being in a state of retirement, uh, has been very challenging. There's a lot of going back to the past and all the things he didn't do and stopping work too early. Yes. Um, and he makes many of the same remarks that you do, but without the same kind of lightness or playfulness when it comes to... Uh, Does he have a meditation practice? No. That's, <laughs> yeah, you see, the pro- look, uh, so probably most of the human race... we. We, we do our best. We're all trying. We want to be happy. Unless, you know, some people are 
you know, something off, dysfunctional. But most of us do want happiness, and most of us, if we retire and got a lot of purpose and meaning uh, from our work, and if there isn't some sense of purpose and meaningfulness in what they're doing, then uh, uh, my father had the same problem. He went to, so, but this is, should be about you. See, I, I can't help you, Father. How is that affecting you? Um, so the, the uh, I should also say, he, he gets up real early and goes to Dunkin' Donuts, so that's about the he closest he... He gets up real early and goes to Dunkin' Donuts, so that's yeah. like the closest he gets to a meditation, I think. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it, so I wish it's, those were the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do that anymore. The, the question is more, so when I'm with him, uh, I, there's a natural temptation to sort of try to share some of the insights that I've heard other people talk about from these practices or that I've noticed, but I don't feel Does that that's... Does it work? No, yeah, no. Of course not. Uh, how to put this? Uh, don't teach Buddhism, be a Buddha. In other words, uh, no one wants to hear your, your guff. They don't want to hear this stuff. Oh, was, you know, Dad, you, you should learn to get a new skill. You know, there's a f colleges have, you know, like, yeah, you go back to the CI, whatever it's called. And, you know, um, but you can be, mo I don't know what you should do, but there may be limits to what you can do. No, scratch out maybe. There, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Uh, look, I have... With my wife, who's not a meditator, there are sometimes I, I've had to learn how, okay, the suffering that she goes through, where if she had my practice, this practice, she wouldn't have to suffer that way. And I've tried to, in, you know, awaken her to all the beauty of what I know. And she doesn't want any part of it. Uh, so I've learned she has her own way, and uh, the best thing I can do is uh, is how I am, uh, which does help her. Do you see what I'm getting at? So does it upset you? It must, because that's what prompts your question. You love your father, and you don't like seeing what's happening to him, right? Okay, that's what your practice is with regarding this. And then uh, that will enable the mind to be at least a little bit more clear, so that however you are with him is probably going to be wiser and kinder. I don't know how to, the content of how it will be. Thank you. Yeah. Can't offer more than that. Last one, please. Please. Hi. Hi. Um, so I have a question pertaining to um, doubt, doubt in particular. Yeah. Um, so let's say, so I've been at this for about maybe two years, and so Along the way, you I've have to put it right up here. Yeah. Is this good? Good. Okay. Very good. Um, yeah. So, ever since I sort of discovered meditation and spirituality, Buddhism, um, much of it has been on my own and um, through friends coming to places like these. And every once in a while, there's there are moments where you get to taste the fruits or some really great benefits of the practice. Um, and they can seem incredibly wonderful and really reinforce um, the entire practice and sort of um, that just generates a lot of interest and motivation and energy to continue which is great um, but inevitably that doesn't last um, and 
um, I've learned along the way um, how much suffering that attachment to those states can cause. Um, however, when those states are um, not present and a deluded mind is, is present and um, mm -hmm. is sort of is sort of seeking. Um, I mean, I'm guessing. I mean, everyone has the goal of of attaining um, wonderful states. Um, there's no doubt about that. But um, there's also a part of my mind um, when I'm not being super mindful or present. Where you believe in your doubt. Yeah, where you believe in the doubt, and but it, sometimes it can be hard to tell. Um, yes. Which doubts are helpful, which ones are not, yes. and um, yes. and sometimes I have doubts about um, like this specific um, path of Buddhism or like whichever Good, book I'm reading. Healthy. Like, is this like is this book that I'm reading right now about insight meditation? What I should be reading about, or should I be reading more about compassion, or should I be reading more about? Um, right. So all these all these thoughts are going on in my head. Yes. Um, and every once in a while, I'll say like I I will um, listen to, to to one of these thoughts. I'll buy a certain book and I'll read it, and then I'll get back to a place of like, oh, okay, so you know, here I am again, feeling really good, and then that'll sort of reinforce um, those those doubts that I've experienced before. But sometimes, so it's just hard. Sometimes I don't want to get too deep into this. Um, you already are in deep. <laughs> yeah, I've already lost You're track of time. Um, it's hard to, to sort of. No, you've been very in your own simplify way, this question. Quite articulate about it. Yes. Yeah. Um, so it's just hard because sometimes doubts, uh, when you're experiencing them in the present, can give you great suffering. But then the future can like there's a, a part of me which which is is. Um, I think you know what I'm getting at. <laughs> Well, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if I know, but I'll do my best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, first of all, there are many things in life that are doubtful. So it's a healthy... Uh, but if, if doubt is like a chronic, compulsive, there are people who just... Everything is... is yeah, you know, in other words, it's a stance towards life, which prevents... Because uh, some things in life are really good, and uh, in other words, there are many things that are doubtful, and it's healthy to. I would quote, say they should be questioned. When you have any doubts, it's how, the Buddha in the Kalama Sutta, a very very important teaching. I would not be doing this practice if I hadn't read that. It was the first one of the first things I read, where the Buddha said, "Don't uh, b believe me. Don't believe anyone because it's ancient, because it comes from a text." From a, he lists a whole bunch of reasons. He said. Uh, you know, listen to what the wise have said and then put it to a test in your own life. And the test would be, in, in this case, would be, uh, is it helping you live? Are you su is it helping you to alleviate suffering, suffering less? Because that's crucial. Uh, all humans share that, is suffering. But now, regarding doubt, for some people, uh, first of all, you read a lot. It sounds like it. Yes. Okay. Which, which I've realized is... Um, okay, that's a big part of the good problem. Good and bad. Yeah, in other words, 
because you got so many different things going on. No wonder you're confused. Let's see, should I have a strawberry shortcake or should I have chocolate? No, but then again, there's butterscotch pudding, but how about rice pudding? But now it's organic. Oh, it is, but it's with coconut milk. Oh, I'm, not, I'm non-dairy, so I can go to that. I'm a vegan. I'm, you know, you drive yourself crazy. And in this culture, there's a proliferation of choices. And, but let's put it this way. Let's say some of you, sometimes you try a path or method or technique and you really doubt it. Live with it a while. I would use the word, when it's constructive, I would use the word questioning. The doubting is useful. In other words, hmm, is this how, like some of the claims, like don't believe what I've been saying here this evening. Because this is my job. Of course I'm going to say what I've said. This is, this is what I do. It's, I'm in the business. <laughs> You know, so uh, what am I going to say? Meditation doesn't work, but if you want to come here, uh, it's okay. It's a waste of time. My life is worse than it ever was. I wish I had never left the university and just I'd ever have a good salary and health benefits and a pension plan. No. Okay, now, I'm, I, my, I'll leave it at that. So I'm not to be trusted is what I'm saying. Listen to and then wait. But now, but then there's sometimes the doubt is or the questioning is hard to evaluate. Let's say, regarding a lot of paths, if you you're trying other paths, other forms of meditation. Um, Don't worry, I'm not not competitive with. No, not really. I mean, I guess in the beginning I was sort of, I was just sort of spiritual, I guess, Um, and then I and then I whatever that means. Yes. Um, And then I sort of. Are you very spiritual? I don't want to answer that People, question. People, that's a good thing to say about someone. I just met somebody who's very spiritual. Oh! Yeah. yeah the, and The rest of us, yo-yo brains or whatever. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, and then so um, I was introduced to Buddhism from a friend, and I, I was sort of looking at it from a distance, um, and I, I didn't really like fully jump in and say, like, I'm now fully Buddhist, but over time, um, I started, I was just more drawn to um, what it had to say, and um, good. No yeah. one's telling you you have to become a Buddhist here. Yeah, but look, look, look there, there is faith in in the Buddhist teaching, but it's not faith that we might know in a Judeo-Christian or maybe Islamic as well, and maybe Hindu. I'm not sure. Uh, there may be others who know that the faith here is tentative. It's like a provisional hypothesis in science. Uh, that is, you need some faith to get started. Obviously, you have gotten started. You've tasted some of the fruit, you, in your own words. Okay. And now and then, you have doubt. The practice, you know. Now, when, but have you, you've tasted enough to keep going. Look, if somebody is, no, no, you've said so much already. If you fill my plate up more, I'll get confused. I'm already confused. Um, so let's say um, with all these different paths, and in Cambridge, it's one giant mall. Actually, the whole, with the internet, it's a mall of, you know, you can, what do you want? A Zen? What kind? Vietnamese Zen with Thich Nhat Hanh? No, there's another kind. It's in Vietnam, but they don't, they're not as, they don't say, be happy all the time, you know, be, do this, and, you know. Uh, but then again, I like uh, a Mongolian Buddhism. Fine. There's clicking on that. Here's a Mongolian teacher. There are videos on him. Um, so the mo- it's a huge mall. And to, to begin with, it's good to try of it. But if you find a path with heart up until now, no path is going to be perfect. 
There's going to be some things in it that you don't like. There's no teacher who's perfect. Uh, I have some teachers who I love. I owe, my, so I owe as much to them as to my blood parents. But they weren't perfect. My parents weren't perfect. I'm not perfect. You are never going to be perfect. So but there's enough faith for you to, to generate energy to practice. And then now and then you get discouraged. But if you found at this point, let's say this path, ten, let's just ten, I'm not trying to sell you CIMC, but let's say at this point it's reasonable, then it has a, it's a path with heart for you as of now. It may change. Okay? Then don't go to the mall. Give everything you have to this and find out what it can do. The day may come where you realize, no, I, I met this uh, Tibetan Lama or this uh, Japanese Zen master and I really feel more drawn to that or I, I'm much more drawn to doing Raja Yoga and the Hindu, you know, that may come, but right now it seems like there's enough that's going on for you to be here. You're here tonight, the way you speak, and does, any, does doubt come in from time to time for all of us, discouragement? It's a mind state. So the doubting mind, awareness is never doubting. Here's the beauty of awareness, and maybe we'll end this evening with this. The awareness I'm talking about when it becomes refined and stable, it doesn't get old, it doesn't get sick, it's not even Buddhist. It's a human quality of being awake, of being clear. And it, the, all these different states come in front of it, which we believe in. And, uh, and then we're taken on a, on a journey by them. Awareness, so that if the doubting mind comes up, the observing mind can see it and watch it, learn from it, and see it dissolve. Now, sometimes when you get to know the doubt, it'll turn out that there's real substance to it that it's time, this is not the path for you. You can feel it. You, now, I can't give you a formula as to know when, it's, how, when to trust the doubt and when not, because this is an assembling a vacuum cleaner. There's an artful, intuitive sense to Dharma practice. And the, the clearer your mind is, the more you'll be able to assess your own situation and come to your own conclusion. You'll be able to trust your intuition and be able to see you know, this has been useful for me for two or three years, and now it no longer is. Fine. Gratitude, thank you very much, move on. Or you may wind up doing this for the rest of your life. I have no idea. But it's all in... Uh, these, the, the observing mind or awareness... Uh, there's one term for, for enlightenment, which I like. It's called the great seeing. The great seeing. Which means uh, it's beyond life and death. Uh, it's beyond any condition that you want to put up and tell me about. It's not Indian, it's not American, it's not, it's, it just sees. And something extraordinary that comes out of the seeing. When, when it's that steady and clear, it is wisdom. And actions that flow from it have a better chance of being wise and kind. So s stay with those doubts as mind states that come up. But it sounds to me like there's enough going for this practice, at least right now, for you to keep on it and see that sometimes you falter and sometimes you have doubt. So let that be not special, but part of what you practice with. Do my words make any sense? Yeah, they do. Okay. Thanks. Can we have, I think we already over, can we have a moment of silence, please?
May we continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us. Thank you all very much for coming here on this hot night, putting up with all this blah, 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 and uh, enjoy what remains of our summer. Or don't enjoy it. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.